0: Hey, this is David Reed Watson. And Kat Krita. And we're right here on Rock the Talk, a.k.a. Walk Your Talk. Join us every week for some great music.
1: And some inspiring conversations.
0: Yes, we look forward to entertaining you. Find us
1: on Facebook at Rock the Talk Radio. Welcome to this week's edition of Rock the Talk. Walk your talk with
0: me, David Reed Watson.
1: (laughs) And me, Kat Critta. Today we have Michael Blandon. He's going to share his wisdom, his folly, and everything in between. He is a man of uh, many talents and many paths.
0: Well, anybody that names himself a free-thinking, progressive <laughs> Renaissance man wannabe, uh, and that doesn't—it doesn't end there. Quest physicist in training and Optimus Prime—he's probably got
2: a good amount to say.
1: Absolutely,
2: <laughs> Michael, welcome. Thank you very much, Kat and Dave. And uh, I see you've been stalking my Facebook profile. So um, yes, those, <laughs> those those are my, my self-entitled appellations. Thank you very much. You know, and they basically, I think they all boil down to say, I'm just as lost as everybody else, but I'm finding my way, hopefully like everybody else.
0: You know, I think that that's a good place to be as never, because I think once you find the end, you're, I mean, what is there to do then?
2: Yeah, you're always learning, lifelong learning. I think I remember reading – Bruce Lee told a story about a Buddhist monk who – he became enlightened. He was a young monk who became enlightened. That's the journey that every monk, every Buddhist monk aspires to. And so all all of his young monk buddies had heard uh, from the masters that one of their own had reached the stage, the state of enlightenment. And so they were so excited, and they wanted to find out from him, wow, the masters say, you are enlightened that's fantastic. How do you feel? And he responded to them just as miserable as ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's it's funny along our journey that
2: the more we learn, the more questions we have. Absolutely. You know, if now, you're a thinking person, if you're a thinking person, not everybody is one of the, you know, not to digress too much on the church, but that was one of the messages that, um, the pastor talked about the idea just, just today. He said, uh, you know, isn't it ironic that some people find themselves along the course of their journey, making it to the end, possibly stupider than they started out.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. We get, we have a tendency to get stubborn and stuck in our ways, mm-hmm. right, You know, and it's, it's, they're hard to get out of. I mean, we all fall for, it. I, I mean, I do, I, I go into these downward spirals all the time, you know? It's just part of the human condition. Now, for you people out there that don't know Michael, uh, Michael and I go back. Do we even say how many years? Because you look like you're 25. So
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I got a little grain here that might speak (laughs) to the the opposite of that. But when we we start measuring our friendship in terms of decades, uh, I don't know what that says. (laughs) But we started out on radio together.
0: That's right. Long time ago. Long time ago, back back when we used to play records.
2: <laughs> vinyl. Yeah, good. yeah, the retro vinyl nowadays and they're very collectible from what I understand. We're becoming cool again.
0: I um I think about all the records that I used to have, all the vinyl I used to have that is <laughs> now gone. Yeah, and wow. um yeah, and I a lot of them I got from KKL. You know, we get okay. those ex, extra ones and um you know, such such magic times to start us off on our path. You know,
2: what what, uh, what music were we listening to back then? I'm trying to remember. Oh, geez. Um, what were your you musical know. influences, Dave?
0: <laughs> well, uh, what were mine? I, you know, for for a metalhead, I, I I really, as a metal singer, mm-hmm. I was probably more into. Um, I was probably more into Suzy and the Banshees and, oh. and you know and and stuff like that than I was Cranberries, the Smiths, stuff Smith? like that. Oh man, yeah, more than I was into you know Megadeth
2: or something like that. So
0: yeah, that's interesting. About?
2: Yeah. Because yeah. you definitely evolved more into that area. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think when I listened to your music, I, I was listening to Native Sun that you were playing recently. Right. And what's immediately came, I'm listening to the Rototoms going, and I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking speed metal. Mm-hmm. Would that, you call it that? Well, um, it's funny because
0: the, the drummer in this band was from a band called Soil, and he also had a death metal band called Oppressor. There we go. So, yeah, he's a Tom is definitely big with the Toms and (laughs) his feet are very fast. So, um, yeah, it was uh, this new this new music is definitely an interesting collaboration because we have we have the the Brit, you know, over over there in the Midlands of the UK, who is probably more more standard kind of. British metal, you okay. know, you know, more like, f- I don't, I don't even know. I wouldn't even know where to put it, but you know, along the Megadeth, or, or I'm sorry, along the uh, Iron Maiden kind of mm-hmm. method, where Tom's very American metal, mm-hmm. and I just sing. I just, I, 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 I well, the way I look and at right. sing, the way I look at singing is, um, I listen to the music, and it's almost as if the the word, the words, and the melodies come through me, mm-hmm. and this will this will segue very much into spirituality. I think because I'm a firm believer that we tap into a collective conscience, mm. and okay. we pull that information to us. If we have an open enough vessel, we can get that information. Like cat, cat's amazing with that. Cat is. Um, Kat is now a Reiki master since the last time you saw hey, her.
1: Hey, yes.
3: congratulations.
1: Thank you.
0: And she is such an open vessel, you know, <laughs> that she she can channel this information much she very unfiltered, where I'm where I've got these filters of doubt and so on and so forth, which she doesn't. So I mean, where, where do you find your inspiration for what you do?
2: Oh, interesting. Well, um, interesting question. Yeah, you know, because I think we're all on the same page spiritually in terms of trying to you know connect with a higher spiritual consciousness, and in terms of you know music, I always believe what I was taught back you know back in grade school when they talked about um, models for education and the 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 Athenian citizen model from ancient Greek would talk about. Uh, democracy, they talk about war and balance and government, but they also talk specifically about music and the arts, and that music and the arts played an integral role in the shaping of the spirit, of the consciousness, of the ethos um, of the citizen. So they said, you know, the the perfect Athenian citizen would have a balance of education along with artistry, including music, um, performance, you know, graphic art, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. but especially music. They talked about the influence on the soul, and so I think there is something there for you know for all of us. And for me, I know if you hear music or you think in a musical way that that affects your your spirit and affects the way you feel and your outlook on the world, uh, then you think of it as as a, as a spiritual kind of communication. Right. And I've always uh, also looked at music as a platform, and I know sometimes this gets controversial, but um, I think of music and, and the ability to stand on stage and then the ability to influence others, that there is a spiritual giftedness in that, a spiritual giftedness in communication, and it becomes a platform to connect with people. And once you have that connection, for me, the next question is, okay, great, now you have a connection through this spiritually um, influenced medium, what do you have to say? What are you gonna talk about?
1: Uh-huh. Right. I think that you you you're touching on um, the robust balance of the right brain and the left brain. And they mm-hmm. were absolutely on to something with that because you can have all the facts and figures and, and data in the world and find it and be not really literate if you don't have a balance with your with the other parts of you, the the heart and the um, and being in touch with your soul and mm-hmm. that stuff. And so, I think that's I think that's definitely something they were onto. Do you? I mean, do you believe that? You know that uh, there's there's a balance there that we're missing these days.
2: Oh well, I mean, how appropriate a question for you to ask too. Being a female, where I've learned in some of my. Re- trauma recovery coaching uh, work now, that, that you're, you're talking about the balance between the left and right brain and that, that area, that platform in between that connects the two, the corpus callosum, is actually bigger in females than it is in men. So the, the idea being that women have a much easier time rectifying that left-right brain than men do because of that increased corpus callosum area there. Do we as a society have a problem trying to figure out left brain, right brain balanced thinking? Uh, Interesting. I mean, we find ourselves in interesting times, politically, socially, economically with regard to, and and I think all of that stems from spiritual in terms of divisiveness, um, a world of opinions out there and opinions being thrown around as facts um, I mean, I think it's it's wonderful that we can all, all have opinions. And I think it's great, you know, in a country like America, where we're supposedly encouraged to have, you know, free speech and open opinions and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think it's somehow we have to get back to that understanding of the difference between opinions and facts. And I think we've lost that. Oh,
0: I yeah. I, I, I remember when the whole fake news thing started to come out. And, it, and it's, it, it's, it's, it takes you down a path that where you don't trust anything anymore. It's very hard to trust anything anymore. Even, even if you've always believed Mm -hmm. that these people have had the, had a good intent because that voice is in there now, Mm. it makes you question,
2: you know? Um, and just right. because we have an opinion about something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. I've, I've, I've had opinions about various things for, for years and then come to find out, oh, wow, maybe that's not accurate. Or maybe now that I've learned to see things from a different perspective, right. maybe I might see those things differently. And people weigh into opinions on social media. And I was uh, I was reading about that today and said, uh, you know, I think Burger King put out – it was a McDonald's or Burger King put out ads for the Quarter Pounder. And yeah. – and one, one, I think it was McDonald's put out the quarter pounder, mm-hmm. and then Burger King tried to compete with the third of a pound burger. And it, <laughs> number one, it didn't it didn't roll off the lips as you know the tongue no. is quarter <laughs> pounder. But it was interesting. They said sales slumped and the campaign failed because the vast majority of people on out there they were trying to reach just didn't understand and didn't believe that a third of a pound was more than a quarter of a pound based <laughs> on their opinions.
1: I think those are the people that can't make change for a 20. I'm just saying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But but in their opinion, you know, they thought, no, no, no. My quarter pound is bigger than that third of a pound, whatever that is. You know, it just believed it. And that became a reality.
0: Do you ever give a kid uh, your bill comes out to ten dollars and one cent (laughs) and you give them a penny?
1: Blow their mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
2: Yes. It just happened to me yesterday. Yesterday I did that. (laughs) Just yesterday here's the here's the extra penny over and she stumbled for about 30 seconds trying to figure on out how to make my change back to me and still gave me like 22 cents randomly it's like huh okay i don't want to (laughs) 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 just take the
0: 22 cents and (laughs) just take it it and walk on (laughs) you know you talk about opinions and and facts um cat and i we we've been we, we we talk about this quite a bit on our show and there was a a movie documentary that came out on netflix probably about a month ago mm-hmm. called the social dilemma i'm not yeah. sure if you yeah, i did yeah and um i've seen it how it's 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 i don't think they've meant to initially but how it's turned into uh, such a division you know, where and and I always knew it was a slippery slope when you would only have people that you want to speak on your platform speak. At kind of at, at, how are you going to grow? I mean, remember debating in college. I mean, that was Absolutely. A, that was the biggest thing that we learned was that you need that objective opinion to Absolutely. create a
2: new opinion and create a you know, new I, idea in your head. I've always had um, my 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 personal mission was to have as diverse a group of friends as I possibly could, Mm -hmm. gender wise, ethnic wise, philosophical beliefs, political beliefs, because that's the only for me. That's the only way I figure I'm going to learn another perspective. Someone else's perspectives are based on their experiences, uh, their life directions, whatever's happened, and if. If I surround myself with those people, I'll learn something new that I don't have insights into or I haven't experienced, and that's how I'm going to broaden my worldview. But you know, there's an old ad. I was just sharing with some people the other day. There's an old adage. You know, it's old-fashioned because they talk about it from a businessman perspective, um, because we have business women, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. But I think the adage still holds true. They say when two men in business agree on everything, one of them's not necessary. <laughs>
1: Wow. Oh, I find mother on like and work my team in my team. I have one who's a devil's advocate. And Mm -hmm. I used to I used to not like her at first. Now I love her because you know when we're all we're all gung-ho on a project, she comes in with all of the what about this? What about Mm -hmm. that? And she's right on. Sometimes there's things that we didn't think of that are a huge roadblock. We would not have that. We would have fallen and found out the hard way without her. So,
0: I think that the ego gets involved with something like that. And yeah. not, many, not many people are, will allow that kind of input because they're, they'll, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, this guy's bucking for my job. Right. He's trying to right. make me look bad in front of other people, which is that, – that's, that's an ugly slope. You just nailed it.
2: You just nailed it. I mean, it really stems from a place of self-confidence. If you're Mm -hmm. self-confident and you don't have those kinds of insecurity issues and you're open to new information, you're going to do better. The entire team, like Kat was talking about, will do better. Um, Everyone will do better in that kind of environment once you divorce ego from the situation and insecurity. Get rid of that and say, okay this is as much as I can see and my view is imperfect. Who can see something else that I I've missed. And yeah, that those checks and balances in whatever organization, which we're involved only makes it better and stronger.
0: I, I don't know why you got out of politics because
2: you are, (laughs) you are, you are quite the statesman. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, aren't we all, you know, it's just finding that, it's finding that voice. It's when you like what I was speaking about earlier, once you find a way to establish a platform, that's great. A lot of people want a platform because they want to be seen. Um, I think from a position of ego um, and I'm learning about past traumas and that sort of thing, you know, maybe they felt like they weren't seen in their families of origin or in their school or in their work, whatever it was. It's great to want to be seen and it's great to be seen because you feel validated. The, ch- the challenge it becomes is once you develop a platform where you can be seen and more importantly, you can be heard, what do you want to say?
0: True. Well, what do you want to say? I, 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 take it, you know, my, I, I talked to m- m- other musicians about this. Um, mm-hmm. My drummer, he's, he's not, you know, he's a great guy, but he thinks politics should not be involved with music at all. And, and, and I like, I like his point. But me, I'm completely opposite. You know, I wrote songs about standing rock. I wrote songs about all kinds of different things, uh, bashing certain political leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not all I talk about. But I do, I am very aware that the people that I sing to, that I I want them to at least walk away with um, an open mind and say, hey, you know, he made, he had a point. I don't necessarily believe with him, but I just want them to walk away thinking at least, you know, because it is as a politician. It's like Mm -hmm. you don't want to you don't want to be in that position of just being a figurehead. And I mean, you went into politics because fundamentally you believed in something. I mean, it wasn't because okay, I'm going to go into politics because it's a really cush job and I can retire, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, my local level of politics certainly wouldn't have afforded any of that. And people would still challenge me every once in a while when I was a town official, a county official, and they assumed that I was making all kinds of fantastic money associated with it. And uh, it's like, for 10 years, all of the political assignments that I – well, no, eight or nine years. For eight years, all of the political work that I did was – either strictly voluntary or I was reimbursed mileage to a very limited degree to the tune of like three or $400 a year in travel reimbursement. So, you know, I tried to explain to people. And then later on, when I, when I ended up, um, serving as in, in our town council, we, people said, well, you're, you're, you're paid. You should be uh, available 24 seven and you're making all kinds of crazy money and perks and whatnot. And I explained to them, um, uh, do you know? I, I had this conversation with a good friend of mine who served on the town finance committee. And they're in charge of our budgets, the town's budget, but also all the budgets underneath. And even she seemed to be of this um, opinion that we were making all kinds of money. I said, "Have you actually looked at the budget and seen what we get? You realize that I, I was for the first time in my life I was finally earning something as a as a, as a local town oriented politician. My stipend." And this is just a few years ago, three, four years ago. Um, my stipend was $3,750 per year. <laughs> <laughs> per No-hoo! year. Yeah, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> that's ramen noodle food. That's, wow. that's... Like, I broke it down. I think it's like $68 and change a week. And I'm like, okay, but you know, <laughs> if, you know, like people do – being on call uh, with people 20 and they think that, well, no, it's your job now. So, you know, you should be on call 24-7. And you right. should field all these various questions and problems and issues around the community. I mean, to, to to your statement earlier or your question about, you know, what what drove me into politics was. I kind of just fell back on my family and my grandmother who always said to me, you know, hackneyed, um, adage, but I think it holds true for most people who get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem.
0: Wise words. What, um, is your, where, where,
2: what's your heritage, Michael? What's my heritage? I am, uh, I am a, uh, person of, as I always like to joke and tell my friends that, um, because we're, Eastern Band Cherokee on my mother's side. Um, but I'm also a little bit white, too. <laughs> <laughs> I especially like to launch this joke by my uh, native friends. I have lots and lots of native friends yes. of various mixed heritages and whatnot, because that's common throughout Indian country. And I've right. done a lot of work in Indian counseling, advocacy, consulting, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, um, I'm a little bit white. I'm <laughs> actually um, my, my white heritage is um, Irish. Irish. Little English, little French, and a little bit of uh, Cherokee, uh, Eastern Band Cherokee, which is the North Carolina branch of the Cherokee before the Trail of Tears. Then you have the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma, and that's people who are so probably distantly related over there as well. But most of my relations were um, Western Carolinas, um, Eastern Tennessee, that area of the mountains where there was the first push of the Cherokee people. So um, because of that, I've always uh, – gravitated towards native causes and and I'm actually um, excited about the whole month of November being known as um, Native American Indig- indigenous peoples indigenous Month. indigenous peoples month yes indigenous people's Heritage Heritage mm-hmm. Month yeah which is uh and, and it's important to remember especially around the time of Thanksgiving there are a lot of mixed stories that go around around Thanksgiving it's always a time for me of thankfulness and conflict <laughs> um, yeah we um we
0: just finished watching a, um an eight part series, um,
1: Escape the Matrix that, with David Icke.
0: No, not oh not the Escape sixth son that was that was that was another one, but the one about the um the, the the Hopi Indians. Okay, believe that we are actually we've been on this planet five times, like uh, we've, we've wiped ourselves out, we're going into our uh, sixth six. Um, kind of change right now. Um, and anyway, it just didn't, it didn't completely talk about Hopi. It was tribes all over. It mainly, it mainly dealt with Aboriginal tribes in Australia. Okay. And um, us white folk have a tendency to go in there and just completely wipe out these people, either by disease or by virtue, you know? Oh,
2: manifest destiny.
0: Yes. Do you, do you find, uh, you're a Christian, so do you, do you find a conflict in that?
2: Well, it's interesting. One of my best friends that I used to do a lot of consulting work is, um, he's full-blooded Lakota Sioux from, uh, South Dakota. Uh-huh. And he's, um, one of the few people, young people in his generation in his tribe, um, that have tried to pursue a very traditional spiritual path. So we're talking mm-hmm. about you know, Sundance ceremonies, sweat lodges, um, right. prayers to spirits, offerings of tobacco, and things like that. He's um constantly, constantly on my case, telling me. I think it was a quote from the movie The Mission: um, "Apostatize, apostatize," you know, which is a I think a technical term for leaving behind your old religion and grabbing onto something else. So he's constantly on my case, haranguing. He knows I'm not going to, but you know, he keeps haranguing me about apostatizing and leaving the Christian faith and uh, coming to a more traditional native oriented uh, belief system. It's interesting because that's, that's controversial in Indian country where so much of native America was witnessed to by missionaries Right. For good or bad, there's there's a, there's a lot of negative history there, but the attempts to you know kill the Indian and save the man or save the soul, if you will, by witnessing to uh, the missionaries who would go throughout the various tribes and try to Christianize the Indians. There's a whole long negative history of Christian missionary-run boarding schools where you know natives were taken out of tribes, um, forced to cut their hair, forced to not speak their language, forced to to Um, dominant white culture at the time and so there's a there's a movement now in native america to try to gravitate back towards old traditional practices and 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 some people have found themselves in a really awkward spot where it's been gone for so long nobody's around who really remembers what the old traditions were and so tribes you find now especially out here where i am in new england the wampanoag yeah, well, the Wampanoags, the Wampanoags have struggled with this and they've had some successes and, you know, but they've had some challenges trying to rediscover their faith that they left behind for, or was driven out of them 400 years ago and mm. trying to rediscover it. And now they're in the process of, of borrowing some practices from other tribes in an attempt to sort of find their own native spirituality. Hmm. I wonder if they were more...
0: I, I always, uh, I'm always curious about this. If they were more like the druids, you know, <laughs> you know, where the druids were pretty much land based, you know, uh, you, we know this of Native American culture. I remember, um, I always, I always made it up, but it wasn't the truth. Like my my old metal band, Kill Ritual. I couldn't stand the yep. name of it, for, so I I made it up, and I would tell people this. I, you know, Kill Ritual in my in my uh, the way I looked at it was native americans would ask a deer if it would you know sacrifice its life for it and for the tribe and that's what i used as a kill ritual it really wasn't that though honestly but i like the idea of i wonder if christianity can become more um more of that earthy kind of element you know i mean you talked about your church doing the outside outside thing and whatnot, mm-hmm. you, the the uh, you you mentioned um, the tattoo church stuff yep. like that. <laughs> um, I've noticed in my day because I, I I I ran away from the the Christian faith mm-hmm. uh, when I was younger. Was my mom sent me to Born Again Christian camp up in screen Lake, New York? Called oh, yeah, of, yeah yeah Word yeah. of Life. When I was Word of Life yeah. My son went there. I, I've been there before. I've seen. I've been to that camp. It was. <laughs> It was horrid for me, just for, for me. You know, I'm not speaking about your kid. Good for him. But it was. Uh,
1: the food. They may have improved the food since then. The
2: you know, we go a long way with quality food. I think for any organization on out there, they really need to keep that in mind. If they want to attract followers, how about the food and food quality?
0: That's right. It's, and portions. Portions, portion control—that's what that was my problem. Portion control <laughs> it builds up here, um, but I've noticed uh, as um, as we've grown uh, in my fifty-seven years, the um, we've no I've noticed the Christian religion. I've noticed um, mainly the Christian religion becoming a little bit more lax, not necessarily in. Their belief system mm-hmm. but in um their acceptance okay of, of other things um do you find that in you know what in the people that you're with or do you i mean because come on you're you're in stoic new england
2: uh uh-huh. you know? the bastion of pilgrimage you know pilgrim and puritanical values still yes,
0: yes. And, you know, I grew up in a family like that, and it's, it's very beaten into you. And it's hard to uh, separate yourself from that. It must even be more, more difficult for someone who, uh, who's indigenous, you know, or mostly indigenous, to cross, you know, kind of balance that out.
2: Uh, it's interesting when you go to church in New England and probably certain places in the South. I have family down in the Carolinas and like my dad's side of the family is very waspy uh, right. and very traditional Southern Baptist. I mean, so, I mean, the whole fire and brimstone, you know, th- th- some of that's there. Uh, right. But up here, what I would say that's universally true, both the New England and the Southeastern churches, and I can't speak for the rest of the country, but um, it's interesting when you walk into – A church, a traditional, settled church, looking to try to see if you can make connections uh, and fit in to a degree with a group of people that will accept you. Right. And it can be challenging when you walk into what appears to be more like a country club than what you think would be a church. And when I say country club, I mean old, white, Mm. conservative. Yes, and, and 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 sort of the the unspoken understanding that we're all on the same page over here and you coming on in uh, what page are you on are you gonna get on our page or are you gonna you gonna stand yeah. out which in our community might be problematic right hmm. so it's it's challenging I think um, I my my personal view on church is that um Church is just the meeting place. Um, It's just it. The. People think of church and they think of the building, but the church is really the community of people who gather together and share spiritual values. That's what it is spiritually speaking and uh, kind right. of more philosophically. My son, I think we've discussed, you know, he's in his last year of a uh, Bible college study to become a minister. So right. he graduates in May and he's going to hit the bricks and pound the uh, yellow pages looking for one ads for uh, pastorships, which I think is going to be challenging for him. We'll see how that goes, but I've been learning a lot through him. It's It's been great to, raise him on up in a religious belief system. And and now I find myself in the interesting role where, you know, he's learning more than I know, certainly from an academic background. Now he's teaching me. So that's, that's a good thing. He said something early on about the the political divide in the country. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said, you know, there's a lot of um, discussion around putting Christ back in Christmas And there's a whole bunch of discussion that could happen around that subject. But I love what he had to say about it. He said, uh, a lot of people talk about putting Christ back in Christmas. He said, I'd settle for putting Christ back in Christian.
0: When we come back, we're going to have some more conversation with Michael Blanton. For right now, we're going to play a little bit of music for you, break it up, and uh, we'll be back.
4: I am for teasing because I can. And I razzle, dazzle, ghost, star gazing through the outermost, through a fiery tempest toast. Still, I can manage your love for me I am the medicine man I am the medicine man walking sand to stuf- toast still I can't manage your love for me and still I can't manage your love for me
3: Some world down below You don't stand a chance Against my prayers You don't stand a chance Against my love Your Lord the Ghost stand the long
4: We shall live again We shall live again My sister above But she has red paint I've wounded me
3: like the Latter-day Saint You got the big drum in the distance The blackbirds in the sky That's the sound that you hear When the buffalo cry you don't stand a chance Against my prayers You don't stand a chance Against my love The unlawed the ghost dance The unlawed the ghost dance We shall live again we shall, we shall live again. We shall live again.
4: Crazy Horse was a mystic. Yeah. He knew the secret of the trail. And sitting bull, the great apostle of the ghost standing. Come on the ranch. Come on black man.
3: Come on Shashua. Come on Shai.
1: songs no more Beautiful, welcome back Yes We're listening to Ghost Dance by Robbie Robertson And the Red Road Ensemble. And before that was Now It's Dark by George Lynch George Lynch's Shadow Train And Medicine Man by Robert Mirabal
0: Yeah, um, you know, I was I was on the beach in Marina Del Rey Where I used to live and a um, guy was playing a flute, and I, you know, he was sitting there, and I go, and I notice it said etched on the side, it said, it said Robert Maribel. So Robert Maribel is uh, is also a flute maker, um, Native American, and I believe he's in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. It might be New Mexico. It might be New Mexico. I think it might be New Mexico. Wow. So we're we're gonna continue on this theme because we we have a Native American on the show with us yeah and we're going to get back to that show right now when I talk about my own spirituality I I, I don't I tell people I'm not a Christian that I'm I'm Christ like there you go I prefer right. to be more of that sure just because of the the dogma and, and I know a lot of that is my own stuff. I understand
2: that. Yeah, it turns a lot of people off. Turns a lot of people off, unfortunately. And uh, but I but I can't necessarily make a lot of excuses for church or for Christian behavior, to be quite honest. And this is going back historically to problems with tribes here in this country. This is going back further than that, problems in Europe and the Crusades. And it's coming right fast forward here to, you know, modern day politics and the evangelical right wing. And um, question, you know, I, I question the the, the direction uh, of a lot of folks that are involved on, you know, what ostensibly is supposed to be, you know, my home team, you know.
1: Oh, I've I've um I've met some of the most unloving and judgmental people that could quote quote till the day is done. Sure, but they've missed the whole point.
2: <laughs> so you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I always point that on out. My son gets, I think, frustrated, but he knows it's correct. <laughs> that you point on out. If you go back to the Bible and you go back to Jesus' ministry, the pe- the group of people that he had the worst time with during his time here on earth were the religious leaders of the day, his own church,
3: mm.
2: the leaders of the church. You know? gotcha. They were the ones who actually put him to death. So, you know, but he fought with them, argued with them constantly throughout his ministry. And so, you know, I look at the modern day Pharisees, the modern day leaders of the church or, or self-styled leaders of the church. And, and I wonder, it's like, Where's your heart? <laughs> do you
0: think that um, they get complacent, just just like politicians do? Like they, they work their way up a ladder and and they find themselves in a position where they, I don't know, they kind of lose their main purpose for even doing it.
2: You know, the, I remember looking at. Um, my background in business and we look at business training mm-hmm. and there was a graphic that I saw and I think you might have seen it probably thrown around social media the last couple of years they have you know they have a boss and a leader and the pictogram shows the boss on a chair um, and a group of people down below um, pulling the chair and the boss is pointing and giving direction to them showing where to go the pictogram of leader shows the leader on the ground with the people pulling the platform and that per that person is in there with them, you know, pulling in concert, pulling in tandem. And I think a lot of that gets tied up in ego. And I think that's unfortunately people who rise in, in, in church leadership can get tied up in issues of ego, just like people who rise up in politics can get caught up in issues of ego and think that it's about them. And you know, that's, it's not the reason we're called to serve or the the reason we're called to, if you're called to lead, then, you know, there's, there's a shepherd's way of watching over people or the butcher's way of watching over their flock, you know, which one yeah. are you going to be? The butcher or the shepherd,
0: you know? Right. The fear, the fear-based um, controller. Now, uh, if there was a, a leader out there right now, who would, who would that person be? I mean, is it Bernie Sanders? Is it uh, you know someone of that ilk, or I, because we we I think that the, our country right now is is lacking a a real leader. I mean, we're watching this political divide. You know, um, I, I I I'm not much for the Democratic nor the Republican uh, tickets anymore myself and I think um, you've
2: always kind of um you've, you've always you and I see it as both as centrist but I think you're a, you're maybe a little bit more right of the line than I am I'm a little bit more left of the line mm-hmm. generally generally speaking would you say that's true I you know coming
0: from you maybe that's true <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah. I always thought of myself as a as a left-wing hippie oh, wow. <laughs> to, to, to most people <laughs> uh, but yeah i'm definitely more centrist for sure um am i more conservative though i don't think so you know all right um cool um if anything i you know like this this election like the last election i voted green party well good for you you know mainly because that, that those are my beliefs and i cat shares this with me in the Not that she voted – I don't even know what she voted because she's great at not telling anybody, not telling her parents, not telling any of her family, um, which I find admirable because that's how Mm -hmm. I think it should be. We should hold our own space and go into that booth and say, you know, this is what my gut is telling me. This is what my heart is telling me. I think curious, we have-
2: um, what, what does Kat have to say about that? Not that she necessarily, I want to put her on the spot and tell her to, you know, espouse her political be- beliefs or platform, but what do you think about that in general? What's your thoughts on the political process or, or yours and other people's political choices?
1: Um, I think it's been, um, it's been coming for a while where I, I feel like there is a lack of good choices.
2: Mm-hmm. And, um, I think the vast majority of the country agrees with you.
1: Yeah. And so, so then you're, so then people are, find themselves. And I know, you know, even people in my family have said, I didn't know what to do. I just know that this person is not their ideas. There's something's wrong with their ideas. So I had to vote for that person and I don't really believe in that person, you know? So it's, it's just become this really weird dance of voting for someone just to not vote for someone else. And, um, And I think that that's a failure of, um, in every way that we don't have actually more variety in our choices. And, um, we're so wrapped up in, um, personal items and scandals. I, I, you know, we lose even what people are actually standing for and what they, what they're going to do for us.
0: Yeah. I think, I think, uh, I would love to go. I'm not saying I, I will never ever say that the good old days were the best old days, but there were some highlights that I did enjoy. You know,
2: um, it was predictable. That, I think at very least, the like when I say the, the good old days, you talk about that. What I what I've distilled out of that for me personally is mm-hmm. the good old days had some level of predictability to it. Whether you agreed or disagreed, at least you kind of saw what was coming. You knew the process and you knew generally the way people would behave and kind of the directions they were likely to make for good or bad, but it was predictable. Nowadays, the predictability is gone.
0: Yeah. It's um, for me personally, I feel like a lot of these politicians now um they're just controlled by corporations. You know, money comes in from corporations and it's yeah. whatever, you know, whatever Exxon says, I'm going to do, you know, whatever Halliburton okay. says, I'm going to do. Did we talk about
2: that? I mean, how, how refreshing it would be if there was some sort of an act of legislation passed that required I would so much rather see these Congress people go on up to uh, Capitol Hill and they'd have to be wearing NASCAR style jumpsuits with all the patches showing who bought and paid for and owned them. So we knew <laughs> who they were actually speaking for.
1: That would be nice. <laughs> I don't think you'd be able to see their uniform.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: it'd be pretty
0: ugly. <laughs> it'd be so pretty big. covered with patches, you might want to make them <laughs> small.
2: Well, and it's I, sad because it's sad that the, unfortunately corporations now seen legally as citizens uh, and the ability to purchase and buy influence, um, they, they can outspend you and I and you know, each of us separately and even corporately because they just have that much clout, influence, resources, and power.
0: Where did that happen? When did that happen?
2: Well, it's been happening for a long time. We all know that it's been happening sort of secretly um, with lobbying and, you know, and, and as someone who actually worked a lot around the world, DC lobbying, I was never a DC lobbyist, but an advocate, which is close. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, you you know that organizations have been doing this for a long time, trying to cultivate influence. Um, and there's, there's a good side to that and then maybe a not so good side of it. I think the problem has been there for years and years, and then there were attempts to try to uh, discourage that. When I was a D.C. intern back in 1996, it was right about the time that the gift ban came on in for congressional members. They could no longer receive any outside gifts of any substantial value over $50. You know, before that time, there were all kinds of substantial gifts, financial and otherwise, that were being given to members of Congress to try to effectively purchase their influence and purchase their votes. So the mm. gift ban came on in as a way in 1996 to try to repair that broken system. But then, um, not long ago, back here in the 2000s, we had the Supreme court decision. Um, Oh, that which which one was that? Um, citizens United, you know, okay. the citizens United decision, which recognized that corporations were endowed with personhood and able to influence, uh, political speech, entitled to free speech, just like you and I and anyone else were. And it's sort of cast off the limits over what they could effectively spend through various vehicles on influencing that speech. And so when you say, well, I'm a citizen, but so is this huge multinational corporation. They're a citizen. We each have an equal um, ability to access these representatives in government to try to make decisions to affect our lives. Well, the problem is is they're, they're far more resourced than I am to be able to have that discussion with them. So, I mean, who who is the congressperson going to listen to when we're advocating for a cause? Is it going to be a little old me or you or you you know, or big multinational corporation who's also funneling tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars into their various campaigns to reelect them, which is quite understandably – what every politician really wants. You know, every career politician wants to maintain their career and get reelected. So
0: this has been going on since 1996 Mm -hmm. for the, for the, for the
2: most part, this uh, yeah, before then. And it's continued and ramped on up. And with the citizens United decision back in the two thousands, it threw off off the the controls, unfortunately. It was that like passed at like one in the morning or something on a Sunday or something. Well, it was a Supreme Court decision, so um, there was there was plenty of scrutiny on it, and a lot of people who weighed on into it. But it came down to that whole argument of free speech, and you know, free speech is one of the foundational blocks upon which our democracy is built, uh, mm. and it and it, for rightly so, rightly so. If we're going to have a democracy, then citizens have to be able to get mm. up and speak their mind and influence the process and influence our. Again, they are representatives in Congress. Right. Sometimes it feels like they're not really representing anybody but themselves or, or a special interest. But at the end of the day, their job is supposed to be within a democratic framework. They are up there talking about laws that are going to influence you and me. Um, and they're supposed to report to us. They're supposed to be answerable to
1: us. You know? Do we still have a democracy if free speech is in question?
2: Excellent question. Sounds like a rhetorical question.
1: <laughs> okay, maybe it is. That's, that's that's the mom in me. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> well, what, what's, ama- what's amazing about this woman is um, with her kid her stature. Her stature is, is definitely amazing. Um, but the tumbling, <laughs> I realize how, how not tall I am though. <laughs> but the way that she is with her kids is very much the way I would love to see how politics are. Mm. You know, um, she allows them to make their own mistakes. She allows them to live their own life. You know, she, she, she corrects them when they need it or Mm. when they ask for it or, um, and I could I could see where being in the political realm and, and having that much power where mm-hmm. you're, you're like, no, it needs to be this way. And that control mm-hmm. factor comes in. Right. Where so many bad parents are that way as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry to use you as an example, but that, that's how I see it. Um, that is a, it, it's it might have been rhetorical for her, but for me, it actually is a real question. It's, you know, are, are we, it scares me to think that we might not be a democracy anymore. But remember, Rome fell after a thousand years. We're a mere 400-ish,
2: you know? At some point, I would encourage you, I, think, I don't know if we had this conversation before or not about um, a scary obituary. It was an editorial that was written as a research um, editorial, and I would Google the scary obituary. And it talks about, it was a professor of politics, I want to say at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And it's kind of written, it's definitely written from a a right-wing political perspective, but some of the general um, principles and observations that the professor makes are really interesting. It talks about every democracy as as being temporary in nature. They are not long-term sustainable. And the philosophy the, the point that he makes there is that the the shelf life on a democracy occurs the moment that the citizens represent the uh, the representatives and the citizens who uh, they represent realize that they can influence and gain from. The public treasury for themselves and at that point in time they start taking actions and lining up power systems and whatnot to try to take from the public treasury to aggrandize themselves and that slowly over time eventually those coalitions rise on up by either side basically fighting over you know our money all of our all of our money and then it's a fight to see you know which can pilfer from who and that sort of thing and eventually um that brings about the the demise of the democracy and he puts the he puts the span on it and then he compares it to various democratic forms of government throughout history uh from europe asia even over here into america um but well, he eventually makes the comparison ultimately to american democracy but he looks at the at the lifespan of these various democracies and he looks at the uh, the roman republic as one of those forms and looks at the shelf lives of those um those democracies and puts them somewhere in the neighborhood around 250 to 400 years is about a lifespan before it it falls down into some sort of dictatorship and just falls down. And then he he superimposes America on that timeline, a timeline of milestones when the people gather, uh, when they start to create unions to protect the workforce, um, when corporate entities start coming into coalition. Um, when the population reaches a certain number threshold and things like this. And it's really scientific the way he models that on out and then superimposes America on that and says, basically, uh, by his analysis, we have passed the precipice and we're on that inevitable downturn where our democracy is going to eventually fail. and It could be in the span of the next 50 years,
0: 100 years. So the democracy fails. What do you see? Uh, uh, We going back to smaller... Communities, Unfortunately, um,
2: well, we, unfortunately, probably fall into some sort of fascism, and then we have to, you know, figure out when when the American people will rise on up and revolt. And I was a student of uh, Asian history, as you recall, you know, right? You were in
0: China. You were in China, China back
2: in the eighties, and uh, for a, for a semester, and I loved it over there. And we learned a lot about Chinese history, Asian history, and Confucius talked about. Not only peace, Buddhist-type principles, that sort of thing. But he talked about Chinese culture and the human spirit. One of the things – and people think that, you know, Confucius say all these wonderful, wise, kind quotes. And he did have a lot of those. But what's less known about Confucius is he also talked about Chinese government and the people and the um, early government. The, the right of The, the right and responsibility of the people to revolt. And he talked about the right of revolution, the responsibility of revolution, that he taught they, they had a they had a belief that if a if a governmental entity came into control that the god God or the gods willed it and should support it, up until the point that government proves that it is corrupt and ineffective and self-serving and no longer serves the will of the people and defies, you know, God's uh um the mantle. Of heaven, and once they have done that, then it is not just the re- the right, but with the responsibility, responsibility of the people to rise on up, take down that government, and reinstall a new, more benevolent, more publicly oriented government.
0: So you were over there uh, when Kim Kim Jong Il was alive.
2: Is that correct? That's true. That's true. Yeah, oh, he was over in Korea. And I forget who the pre, who the Chinese president was at the time. Um, but when I was there, it was right before the Tiananmen Square student uprising in Beijing, like literally months before that happened. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, that was huge. I remember that. Interesting time, you know, and it was the, uh, it was, you know, the Chinese would say that that was the Western influence over the students, you know, and, you know, whenever you study a foreign language, you're going to learn not just the vocabulary, grammar and sentence structure, but you're going to learn about the culture, you're going to learn, you know, when I studied French in high school, we got to learn about, you know, we always thought it was so cool that high school students in France could drink wine, you know, and they could, you know, consume alcohol because the European standards were different. And mm-hmm. you'd learn a little bit about the history and the culture and what's it like if you learn French and you're dropped into Paris. What would life be like over there? How would it be different? Well, the same thing would happen in China, where the Chinese students were studying America. They were studying English and studying American and, and European culture. Um, and, and how is it that they live over there? And when I was there in the, in Nova, in the, the fall of 1988, you know, the students of English over there, and English was, was being studied because it was the predominant language of international business at the time, and it probably still is today. Right. Um, so the, the Chinese wanted to make sure their, their students could speak the predominant language of foreign relations and business, and that was English. And, but they wanted to learn about American culture. You know, they they would, they would pepper you with questions all the time. You know, is it true that you can move from one province to another province anytime you want? You know, it's like, yeah, we, we do that in the States. If you want to move to from one state to another, you can do that. In China, you couldn't. You could only move from a state of higher population density to lesser population density. Unless you had a very specific skill that was needed in that other province. And then there would be a whole... Um, bureaucracy involved in whether or not you could move because of there's such overcrowding or overpopulation issues we talked about the one-child policy issues between you know in China we talked about freedoms freedoms of speech Um, it was it was really interesting you could tell the people were really uh, um, they really really curious to know um, how it is that we lived here and and then questioning their government as to why they didn't enjoy the same kinds of freedoms that we had in the West.
0: Well, I I just finished a, a podcast. A, it was a three day long podcast on dictators, ah. uh, and um, Mao Zedong was mm-hmm. yes. one one of them. Yeah, I mean even to, to revolution. Yeah, even to today, um, he's been dead for forty four years there's still a Maoist kind
2: of prevalence there or that fear, you know, that control. I talked about that with Chinese. I talked about that with Chinese students. And it's funny because the, there was a film that came out. um, The last emperor came out at the same time that I was there in China. It was interesting talking about the, the change from the imperial dynasty to modern Chinese communistic parliaments and the change that happened there and the cultural revolution in that time that was very problematic in Chinese culture. And it was interesting to watch that film in China at the time and to hear people laughing at the cultural revolution scenes. And, you know, I think they were laughing at themselves. Some, you know, thought it was funny and some were uncomfortable with it. But I think every country has periods of their history they they feel awkward about. You know, certainly Mm -hmm. we have that here in America. But over there, it's interesting to watch that, and I talked with some of them about Mao. And one of the Chinese explained it to me um, very succinctly. Said, um, "Well, we talk about you, you, you people out there in America talk about Mao as a bad leader, and you know here in China we see him. We see him in percentages. You know, way back when during the time we saw him as ninety percent ba- uh, uh, bad, 10% good ninety percent bad, ten percent good." It. But, you know, a few years pass and the the lens of, of past recollection, he tends to improve over time. So then he starts to become 80 percent bad and 20 percent good. And over time, he's going to become seen as, you know, a better leader than he was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you
0: traveling the world a bit and saying se- this, um, do you share the same belief that Americans need to travel. They need to
2: experience other cultures. One thousand percent. Yeah. Absolutely. It comes back to that or that spiritual philosophical conversation we were having earlier about um, too many yes people around yeah. whatever the culture is, whether or not it be a religious or a political or community-based organization, whatever it might be a community. You get a different perspective when you see how other people live, how, what their values are, um, what they value and what they don't value, uh, how they communicate and interact with each other. There's a lot to, there's a lot to learn um, and a lot we can improve upon. It was one of the things that America used to be so great about when we used to be a melting pot or a tossed salad or whatever analogy you want to put on it, but
3: mm-hmm.
2: a country of diverse people with diverse backgrounds and diverse perspectives, I think at one point in time in American history, made us a pretty, um, pretty great place to be. And uh, I wish in a lot of ways we could get back to that that way of global thinking that international with that international lens that says, what do they have out there that we could take here and improve upon? And become better and stronger. And you only learn that by interacting with people and living in those situations. I've I've told every college student I know, uh, my son included, you know, um, please go spend a semester abroad. Find, let's find a way to make that happen. Get out of you know your your shell here in your your close knit community and go see the world. Go see a, a bigger perspective. When I went to China, China was my second my second choice, actually. Um, I went there because I had an affinity for the Eastern culture, languages, did a little Kung Fu here in the States. I wanted to see what it was like in the birthplace. Mm-hmm. And and I also had this goal in mind of, I want to travel the world. So why don't I, from the outset, start and go as far away as I possibly can. Now I've gone as far as you can go. Every other place that I choose to visit will be that much closer.
0: You know, my, my Aunt Mary, who passed away, um, oh geez. A number of years ago now, but she passed away at the age of ninety-nine. She was a missionary in China. Oh wow. In the in the thirties. I not know that. Yeah. And she used to talk a lot about the, the Chinese people. I I think it's the same with every every culture. Like here in the United States I know for a fact that I can go to any town. Um, I can hop into any pub or mm-hmm. whatever. And I can sit down and I can have a good conversation with anybody. But I think it's when we start getting in packs, you know, um, our ideals kind of become
2: more solidified. You know, it's interesting you say that because you've got that gift of gab. And people have often told me I have that gift of gab. So, But I, but I, I would suggest, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Did you have the gift of gab and loquaciousness just naturally and that just happened because you fell into it and some people have it and some people don't? Or do you feel that your travels and your life experiences and your willingness to put yourself in uncomfortable situations help to grow that ability in you?
0: Exactly. No, that's exactly it. I think I know and Kat can attest to this because she's experienced it when I become sedentary mm-hmm. I have to shake shit up yeah i I need to I have to shake it yeah, up I, I I do because it's like okay the norm does not suit me mm-hmm. um, and you know what there's a romantic um, thought of 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 the whole settling down and staying mm-hmm. in it I mean you've been in Massachusetts for a very very long time
3: I do know. Um,
0: what I have missed out and not staying in Massachusetts. um, I don't know if you can, you can make a balance between the two of all my travels as opposed to, but when I go back home to Granby, Massachusetts,
2: where I grew up, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, a very small town,
0: very (laughs) small town. There, everybody, the people that I left there, they're still, there. uh, they're still there. (laughs) But I, I wonder what it would have been like. Like Cat like is from this area here. You know, she's from Minnesota, born and raised. All right. Um, the only difference is she's traveled, uh, but she always came back to home base. Um, I feel like I've scattered myself so thin that I don't know what a home base could even feel like. You know, I'm trying to make home base here with her. Mm-hmm. At, um. Minnesota is a pretty cool town. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. I mean, I think she was worried that I wouldn't make it through the winter, but. Michael, it's fricking forty-two degrees. It's forty-two degrees out right now. Yeah, no so oh, idea wow.
1: what's coming his way. <laughs> oh, no.
0: She keeps, she keeps saying that
1: thirty like. below, fifty below, wind chill. Oh. <laughs>
0: yeah, but you know what, yeah. Cape, Cape Cod. Remember putting oh, yeah. pla- plastic on your windows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you know, With it's, the hair dryer and blow. Yeah, <laughs> we got cold, cold winters.
1: Yeah, it's plastic kit downstairs. (laughs) It's not, it's, but you
2: know, it's different wherever you go. That's also the beauty of traveling and experience at different places. Uh, For a little while, when my son was born, we were living out in Park City, Utah, which I loved. I loved, I'll always (laughs) love to to this day and aspire someday to maybe spend more time
0: out there. Great skiing
2: there. Great skiing. Fantastic skiing. Oh yeah. We had three ski resorts within a five mile bus stop, you know, up and down between the three of them. And I worked for the canyons at the time, which was the newest one. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know people warned me about the snow and the depth of snow and all the amount of snow and that, and it's true it's a way more than we get on cape cod you know on cape cod we mostly get rain a little bit sleepy slush and it's crud and it's crap they get a lot more snow out there but i don't know if you have this in um minnesota um the did you i mean what's the is the humidity there like it was out here because when i was we had the we had such an, a lack of humidity in utah that when we get two feet of snow dumped on us overnight, I'd go on out into my driveway with a push broom and I could just sweep the snow off of my driveway. Cause it's like big puffy clouds of cotton balls and you know, back on the, on the Cape and in new England, you get like, four to six inches of wet, sleety, slushy crap. It's just, you know, it's back-breaking work to shovel that stuff. And even though we didn't get nearly as much, it was yeah. just dense and wet. And no matter what you wore, you know, it was humid. It would always soak right into whatever you were wearing. Out in know? in Utah, you know, I put on snow bibs and a t-shirt and I'm sweating and I'm sunburnt at the top of the mountain.
0: Yeah, that's how Colorado was. No, I, I, um, when I got here in the spring, and uh, we, I was helping her clean out the garage. I I laughed at her plastic shovel.
1: Well, here's the deal: we're 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 like that perfect little little in between your Utah snow and your Massachusetts snow because, yes, it's large in quantity, but it's it's heavy and it's wet. It sucks. Yeah, but not New England
2: heavy. I mean,
0: Michael, how many wooden handles have you broken
2: on shovels? there. I don't know. I could probably count them out in my backyard right now. They're still out there for firewood <laughs> for next year, you know?
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we have you. this heavy, heavy
1: Let me Make them stuff. titanium here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: remember someone told me a story about a guy. I think he was up in Montana and he decided he didn't want to have any more winters. He was getting older. He said forget it. And he he packed up his house and he packed up his, co- his truck and he loaded it all up and at the very back of his truck on his uh, – he had a, a big um, tire cover, you know, a you know, mounted tire on the back. Yeah. And on the back of that, he bungeed up his uh, snow shovel, and he drove south. And he says, I just kept driving south, driving south, driving south, driving south stopping and resting and people remarking on my snow shovel strapped to the back of my truck and i just kept driving far enough south until i finally reached a town where people said to me what is that thing he said then i know i've gone far enough (laughs) (laughs) that's true that
1: is funny
0: i don't know if i if i would change this though michael i um I, you know, having lived out West, having, having lived out in Los Angeles and in, in Nevada and living mm-hmm. out in Colorado, Colorado was Florida. the closest. I think Colorado gets two seasons.
2: You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's what I loved about Park City in Utah, two strong seasons. I mean, yeah, there was really no fall and there was really no spring. But there was right. – you know, people always think about it as ski country, and it is that. The winter is ski country. For like four months of the year, it's fantastic ski country. And there's a lot of activity and a lot mm-hmm. of stuff that happens around it, yeah, festivals, just ski. Ski itself is kind of like Cape Cod here in the summer. The problem with Cape Cod is that we've got three months of summer and then nine months of nothing. <laughs> Where, I know. you know. It, Utah, they had four months of ski, and then you have two months of mud season, which does kind of suck, you know, all the mud running on down into the streets, and it's not that great. But then they'd have a great summer season. Summer in the mountains is fantastic, and there's art festivals, music festivals. There's hiking, golf Fly fishing, you know, right. mountain biking—all this great summer stuff to do—and then two months of sort of downtime in the fall where you're transitioning back into ski season. So it's like four months on, two month rest, four months on, two month rest. It's that not was like nice. Cape, yeah, yeah, that's nice, you know, as opposed to the Cape where it's you know three three and a half months worth of summer and craziness and traffic and great weather, and then you know eight to nine months of well, we're waiting for next summer.
0: What What are the two? Best days
2: on the Cape is Labor Day and Memorial Day? Absolutely. Memorial Day when people with their wallets show up and, then, <laughs> no, no. and then, then labor day when they all leave. And man, do you I don't know if you do you, do you remember there's one, you know, there's one highway route 6 basically that yep. spans the cape and there's all these overpasses over that one highway, that one, you know, all these overpasses the various towns and whatnot. And I always remember as a kid, and we still have them nowadays, that people who live near those overpasses On Labor Day, it is a big block party, yard party, where people who live close by there will get hibachis and Uh tailgates and whatnot, and they'll gather near the overpasses, and they have banners, and they have cookouts, and and the people there sit and wave goodbye to all the tourists that are leaving, you know, finally (laughs) the summer's over. (laughs) Yeah, the big <laughs> goodbye parties, and but I don't think they're really as hospitable as they might sound to some people. It's more like, a, "Please get the hell out of here!" and don't yeah. let the door hit you on the ass. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. The, the, uh, I, I thought that I would be sneaky uh, when you know when I got back down on the Cape, and because I hadn't been there in so long, but it's still f- the Cape. It's still very yeah. familiar, and, still and we're on the we're on the motorcycle. Yep, and um, I go, you know what? I just see the long line for the Sagamore Bridge. I go, I'm going to take us over the Bourne Bridge and we'll go the back roads. Nope. I just got, we went over the Bourne Bridge. No problem. But then I ended up in a big traffic jam.
2: You know why that is? Why? Ways app. Oh, you're right. they, They didn't have that when we were young. We had secret back roads and now they're gone.
1: Everyone knows them. Uh, Yeah,
2: see, I was taking the secret back road. Yeah, and they're no longer a secret. Everyone knows their GPS, Waze app, whatever it is, they all tell them where else to go to circumvent the traffic, and now we, the locals, who thought we had all these, you know, back pocket secret ways to go, no, not anymore.
0: You know, my my daughter lives on the Cape, and I, it's, you know, I've just felt, you know, Cat felt it too. It was like you just felt like you're at home again. It's like, wow, this is. You know,
2: it's funny if you've spent time on the Cape, if you've spent substantial time on the Cape. I had a friend of mine describe it to me years ago, and when I was moving away from the Cape and coming back home and spending time down south or out west or wherever it was, and she said, "It feels like this to me," and you'll know, we'll both know because you've you've experienced it. Said so as I'm getting closer and driving towards the Cape and then I go over one of the bridges, as you like to go over the Bourne Bridge, because when you come down, we still have the rotary on the other side, which probably mm-hmm. won't be there a whole lot longer as we we're now at the process where we're going to be replacing both bridges. They're too old and need to be replaced. Oh, boy. So, so that, that's going to be a mess for the next several years when they finally get around to that. And they'll probably eliminate that rotary. But when you go over it now, you come over the bridge, you can see the canal on either side and you come down the rotary where there's that big dune and landscaped into it is the Cape Cod bush, bushes right there, Mm -hmm. landscaping bushes. And she, she said, I just come over that bridge and I look around and I see it spread out before me. And I can feel this weight come off my shoulders and I can feel this sense that, Returned home. Yeah, I, I I
0: absolutely love it. I I, get sense. I want to bring this up because I I I, yeah. I can't forget it to the day of my life for that for the rest of my life. Playing fireball with, <laughs> with the uh, with the Mashpee Indians. How are your hands? My hands. Yeah, I think <laughs> I got I got hit in the face. With the with the ball and it had a mesh. It looked like I had a waffle on my face for a couple of weeks because um, people don't know I'll, what it is. Yeah, I'll let you, I'll let you tell, describe
2: it to Cat. All right. Well, it's it's first and foremost, it's 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 a little bit of an athletic event, but at its heart, it's actually a spiritual ceremony. It's a, it's the whole the whole game is a ceremony meant to um, attract the spirits to um, and it's it's. it's you know, maybe this um, says something about native cultures in general, but um, a lot of the religious um, feeling and activity revolves around suffering and pain. <laughs> so, I mean, Sundance is like that. Going into sweat lodge is like that. Playing fireballs is like that. So they, the, the suffering and pain that you suffer throughout the event in the game that's supposed to attract the spirits and make your prayers more powerful. That's, that's really what it's about. But but it's a game like think of football or rugby. Rugby is probably the best analogy because there's no pads, there's no protective equipment, um, and you're playing rugby. But the ball is made out of um, is that chicken you know, wire. Is that- yeah, chicken wire has been added onto it. Originally, traditionally, it was um, it was um, tree uh, sat, like sapling boughs and that sort of thing. It's like a wicker ball, kind of um, soaked in animal fat and then lit on fire
3: <laughs>
2: and you throw that back and forth to each other or kick it and whatnot. So, yeah, you know, people say, yeah, rugby's tough. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. You, you know, all my oh European my. friends, my English and Scottish friends, Oh, we have rugby. It's better than your American football. We don't wear pads. We're really tough. I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. I, I got you on the rugby and a uh, football analogy, but um, you need to see fireball because <laughs> your ball's not on fire. Okay. <laughs> Was, and
1: people are yeah. passing it around?
2: Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they kick it or pass. I mean, the goal obviously is not to have prolonged contact with it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I think I had too much contact with it. I caught the ball. You're, you're supposed to grab Backy it and push it. Sack it and Kinda, yeah.
1: toss it with your foot. Well, they, you I think it? it's,
2: it's too heavy, you know, I think, to toss okay. with your foot. If 2020 had a hot potato game... F- fireball would be it. <laughs> yeah.
1: If it had a, a, a game spokes game. This <laughs> <the worst.
2: laughs> Yeah. And, and of course, you know, obviously it's played after, uh, after dark when it's really, it's actually amazing to witness, you know, mm-hmm. to see, I, I brought my, um, my nephew and my son to the games before to go see that and see how it goes. And they, they were amazed by it. And to see that fiery ball in the middle of the night, you know, night sky tossed back and forth amidst the, you know, ouch, ah, ah you know, and the sizzle, you know, get it between different goalposts on, from one side to another. It's really um, amazing to see. The, um, I have a lot of Mashpee Wampanoag friends that are um, engaged in that, and they're having a tough time as a as a tribe nowadays. Um, What's
1: going have, on? Hold that thought. How about if we play some music?
0: Sounds good. I'll be right back. You know, the first time I saw Blackfoot was in a little bar in North Carolina on the beach at Moorhead City. I remember I was sitting on a little speaker right next to Ricky Medlock. I was in the Marines. I was young, but I was in awe. I was like, oh "Oh my God, these guys can play. You know, he was one of the original Skinner guys. Yeah. And then... You
1: can hear the influences.
0: Oh yeah. Then Blackfoot and then back to Skinner. He's, you know, doing... Oh God. What an (laughs) amazing musician before that. We heard a song called Southern Native, and the band is Blackfoot, and it's featuring Ricky Medlock. That's what we heard before. And then we started off with probably one of my favorite metal bands, Chuck Billy's Testament. Okay. Mm hmm. Song called Native Blood. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're going to get back to talking to Mike now.
1: Yes. Speaking of Native Blood, right? Mm hmm.
0: All right on.
2: Well, I mean, for for years now, they've been struggling with. Um, they were recognized as a tribe, which you know, you talk to a lot of a lot of Wampanoags, good friends of mine, and uh, they'll say the fact that they had to fight for re-recognition again, considering this is the tribe that has been in contact with white culture since the original Memorial Day, I mean uh, Thanksgiving Day, rather, since um, and so that's been. An amazing difficult time um, for them go through contact and then disestablishment saying, okay, fantastic. I think this is back in the I think it was back in the 70s, 1970s, um, federal government made the proclamation that congratulations, you've officially assimilated into white culture. You're no longer a tribe. Oh. You know, you know, it's like it's the ultimate oh. kick in the face, you know, to say, you know, but they, I think they thought at the time, you know, great. Good for them. You know, you, you've you graduated. You're 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 American citizens now and you don't need to have a tribal recognition. Um, so they was stripped from them and from the 70s until 2000. 2007, I believe. Yeah, 2007. They were fighting to become re-recognized as a tribe and say, we are a viable culture. We have not fully acclimated. Uh, we've not been, uh, been fully assimilated. Um, we still have our own independent culture. And they were able to win that battle in 2007, become finally federally recognized as a tribe again. But then the, the next step, so a tribe has a federal recognition. With Western tribes, usually that's a hand-in-glove process that goes with the recognition of the tribe and then the establishment of tribal territory, sovereign territory, what we'd call a reservation or trust lands is what they call it, um, trust lands. So it the, the, the establishes the reservation where their, their laws and their people have a home. Uh, so they've been trying to get their initial reservation application uh, approved by the Department of the Interior. And under the the former administration, a lot of things had been held on up there, and there was a the Carcieri v. Salazar decision that came out of actually a Rhode Island, the Narragansett tribe, which I won't get into the history of it, but it found that the Department of the Interior may have lacked the legal authority to take land into trust for tribes after 1934. So any tribe that was recognized after 1934, before 1934, the act, the the Indian Regulatory Act codified that the Department of the Interior had had the trust, had the authority to take lands into trust for tribes and create reservations. But it was silent as to what happened after now, which was written in 1934. So now, unfortunately, the tribes were caught up in this challenge from folks who said – the Department of the Interior application you had with them to establish your reservation is void because Cartieri v. Salazar says um, you might not have had the – the Department of the Interior might not have had the authority to take that land into trust. So this reservation you say you have is not necessarily legal. So it's thrown into question, Do the tri- does the tribe have a home? They've been looking for a, a, a fix for the Cartieri decision. Nationally, they've been looking for an act that's been forwarded by members of Congress here to fix it for the Wampanoag specifically, mm-hmm. which is what was which is what happened with the Aquinnah Wampanoag, their sister tribe over on Martha's Vineyard. Their 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 reservation was established by um, by an act of Congress in 1987. Um, they, the Mashpee Wampanoag are looking for a similar fix now, but it's been stalled in the Senate for. It passed the House a year or so ago, and it's been stalled in the Senate ever since. And uh, so they're kind of left hanging, and now they've had, unfortunately, some legal and political scandals that have just kind of hit them with their leadership over the last couple of weeks. Actually, you know, last oh two really? Years. Oh yeah, big stuff. Yeah, big stuff. Unfortunately, uh, the chairman, who I used to be a friend of mine, um, uh, he and a and a prominent developer for their their um, casino project that was going to be on their lands in Taunton. Um, mm-hmm. They, uh, the two of them were just arrested, uh, by the and of course, because they're federally recognized, all the crimes rise to federal level felonies. So they were just arrested by the FBI, not the state police, not the local police. You know, it's all FBI. FBI came in and arrested them two weeks ago for, um, um, bribery, extortion, anything you can think of, you know, with regard to, um, selling out the rights to develop the tribe in exchange for monies and gifts and all this other stuff that you can't do. So, you know, it's like, it's unfortunately, you have know, one after another, one problematic thing after another.
0: I've never, I've never trusted the FBI. Yeah, sure. You know, um, mainly because of all the the extortion that they've done in the past. You yeah. know, what what's to say that they just didn't fabricate this to, Stop this from happening.
2: Well, you look at um, um, the movement to try to free Leonard Peltier for years and years and years, decades after his imprisonment for life. He's still there. And there are serious questions out out there. I I don't know the truth of it, but um, there are serious questions about whether or not Leonard Peltier was ever um, guilty of the um, crimes that he was supposedly charged with and sentenced for and whether or not he was just a fall guy. So there's a lot of question around that. And in indigenous uh, circles today, they're still questioning, you know, looking into that case and trying to free him because I feel like he was wrongfully um, prosecuted and uh, imprisoned still. So, you know, who knows? The, the, the FBI needed somebody to be responsible at the time. Did they get the right person? I don't know. Hmm.
0: I've, I've, I've often thought, and I'm glad for them, that Native Americans... Um, they became somewhat quote unquote Americanized and, and said, mm. you know, we're going to, okay, if we can't beat them, well, let's join them in a fashion by starting these casinos. Mm. And it's a lot of it is becoming, they, a lot of them are very powerful. And I, and, t- and tell me if I'm right or not. I've, I've heard this and I, I don't know the facts of it, that that money is predominantly distributed throughout the tribes
2: is that true? I see that smirk on
1: your
2: face. Fairly. Eyes. Oh, okay. you saying fairly true or being distributed fairly?
1: Fairly distributed, right?
2: Ah. Um, I've worked in this area quite a bit with um my friend who I was talking about earlier. We did a lot of advocacy. Um, there, there are agencies in the D.C. area that deal with this area specifically, trying to aid in uh, economic development and financial empowerment of tribes um, business development for tribes and you know in theory that's the way it was supposed to work and in some places it does work that way that way but you have to remember that the oversight over Indian governments is different than what people in, in non-Indian America, non-Indian America experience. Um, you know, your local politics don't really hold sway or even your state politics don't hold sway when they're on their reservation territories. Natives are deemed to be sovereign to the States. So they're not sub that. That's the whole reason why, um, the, the casino miracle, if you will, if you, if, if you see it that way, um, happened in States that don't allow gambling. And basically gave them an effective monopoly on casino gambling because there is no federal prohibition against gambling. But various states would disallow it, say, you know, I think that first started in Florida. The Seminole Nation was the first one to sort of move in this area, and they, they did really, do that. It opened up that loophole that said, hey, wait a minute. Historically, our tribes and our peoples um, had a culture of gaming. We had a gaming culture, games of chance, the ways we made various decisions, that sort of thing. So because of that, the modern-day equivalent of native gaming became evolved into casino gambling. And so said, we're going to open up this business enterprise based on the traditional historical knowledge that we had, the history of gaming. We should be allowed to continue in that vein. And the state fought it, fought it, fought it, fought it. But the tribes prevailed saying, These are sovereign areas, and as long as it's being established on their sovereign territory, the the state prohibition can't stop this federally recognized sovereign nation and people and area from doing business in that way. So they started to accumulate um, massive amounts of wealth in a uh, very short period of time. Um, You know – There's there's been a statistic out there for a long period of time about people who win the lottery. Lottery. They lose it they lose it. Seventy five to eighty percent of people who win the lottery within five years are bankrupt. Wow. Why is that?
0: Because they've never had money before.
4: Bing. Bing.
2: Winner winner. Yeah, without, without financial experience, literacy, background, tools of knowing how to manage that, you know, unfortunately, the vast majority of, of lottery winners lose their money because they spend it frivolously or they, they, they don't recognize how they can invest it or deploy it in such a way as to prolong the usefulness of it and the lifespan of it whatnot. And then you magnify that on a, on a, a scale on steroids amongst Indian country and casino tribes. And a lot of tribes, unfortunately, experience that. You've got tribal elders who are trying to um, put policies into place that would safeguard their nation from these types of rampant run-ups in incomes, all of the various social issues and financial issues that come with it. And then the rapid rundown, um, uh, of individuals and how that affects the tribal community, how it affects their traditional culture. They're trying to sustain all that stuff. So there's, there's, there's pros and cons with the influx of casino cash and per capita incomes that come from them. Um, and, and unfortunately in a lot of tribes it's become sort of a political tool as well. Um, there's a tribe out in California, and I've always thought if I were ever to pursue a, a PhD in anthropology or in social work, I would love to, I would love to do a study about the phenomenon of disenrollment of tribal members in casino tribes for political reasons. Mm. Um, there was a tribe in California that did a lot of this. There was a, there were about a hundred members of a certain family that was uh, prominent in the tribe. And, um, uh, sort of a and, and leaders of that family were sort of a a thorn in the side of the established government of that tribe and so what they found was they did the, the leadership um, they they looked into a genealogical study and they were able to question and then disavow all the members of this particular family said, "You uh, technically, we have found that you uh, don't really qualify for tribal membership. You're not actually tribal members. So, not only are we kicking you out of the tribe, but with that comes we're kicking we're we're taking you off of the per capita incomes that come from our casino um, oh. revenues." So they were, you know, kicked out of their income, kicked out of the tribe, and and people knew that you know in the area that generally th- this was. They, they justified it with a questionable genealogical study, um, but the effect was to basically silence these people that were causing problems with the, the, the governance that's in place. The real, the real kick-in-the-pants irony here is that the members of this family that were disenrolled because they were no longer considered to be genealogically attached to the tribe, their ancestors were some of the founding members upon which the recognition of the tribe came about. But they said, you're not, you're not tribal members. How is that possible?
0: Wow. So, so do you, that's, that's crazy. That's, it becomes a political football. So besides all the politics of that, mm-hmm. the, the money that was, that was uh, given out to tribes, for some of those that did do that, do you think it was more of a detriment that these people got some of this money because they didn't know what to do with it? Maybe start drinking, doing drugs, and mm-hmm. continuing their life along. So that oh, it's
2: sad. It's sad. It's sad. I knew, uh, you know, one young girl. She turned eighteen. She got her uh, ten thousand dollars a month per capita income coming on. In first thing she did is they uh, they ran out and bought a yacht. She didn't know how to. She didn't know how to drive a yacht but she had a yacht and uh, she leveraged her income to qualify for a loan to buy the yacht Uh, very shortly thereafter she cracked it up on the rocks and she unfortunately decided to just dive off the boat swim back to shore and leave it there and you know I got more money coming on in I think was the philosophy and it's somebody else's problem and I don't feel like dealing with it and um and, but still owing money, still owing a payment, but I don't care because I got all this money coming on in, so, you know, someone else will take care of it. At 18, she just didn't really have the wherewithal to understand the responsibilities that should come commensurate with that level of revenue. And, and, and then it – you you amplify that by a number of different bad decisions with regard to you know kids that are legal adults at 18 and and, and come into their ability to earn per capita incomes from the casinos uh, and various other investments that the tribes might make um, for the benefit of tribal members, and you could you could probably quickly ascertain. I mean I don't know how level your head was at 18. I know exactly how. <laughs> If someone was giving me 10 grand a month when I was 18, would I have ever gone to college? Would I have ever tried to find a job? Would I have ever tried right. to work? You know, what would be the point? You know, why would I go to work and effectively take a pay cut when I'm earning 120 grand a year for doing nothing? You
0: know? So so this brings up the question in my mind of um there's been talk about this universal um uh base salary for Yeah, universal everybody. basic income. So i would assume that the same thing would happen in that case unless it was um regulated in some way but then again we start talking regulation we start talking politicians hoarding money um do you think there would ever i i i I guess i'm answering my own question you really you really do have to build yourself up right from the ground right and learn all these things as you get older and just get getting that amount of money. Um, it sounds great in theory to me, though, you know, that we could all have this base amount of money and survive and then go above and beyond whatever we wanted to, if that was the case. One second here. No problem.
3: <coughs>
0: what do you think, Han? <laughs>
2: One of my friends decided to swing by. Oh, okay. Well, we
0: won't keep you too much longer anyway. No, gonna...
2: no, no. It's, it's a great conversation.
0: It's, um, but this, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm a dreamer for sure. And I think of this idea of having this income, this universal mm-hmm. base income, you said, right? Um, right. It sounds like in theory, it would be a great, great thing but as we've noticed in practice already it's not such a great day well i, I-
2: I know uh, when Andrew Yang was a uh, candidate, he was one of the Democratic candidates for president, and I only—I like him a lot. I listen to his podcast. Do you? You know, I like oh, him yeah. too. And you know, who was a huge fan of his was my son, my son would loved him and would have loved to have seen him win. I still have a feeling that under the current administration, there actually might be a place for him, maybe as a secretary cabinet. I don't know if he's jockeying for that or not. He could be, but mm-hmm. uh, his theories around universal basic income. It, had some, it has some interesting foundational pillars to it. I don't know if I agree with it completely. I think, as you point out, there's some problems with handing people money mm-hmm. and, and assuming they'll do the right thing. I think, um, actually, to tie it back on into Minnesota, it was uh, your, uh, your uh, late great Governor Jesse Ventura who said, uh, <laughs> I can't legislate stupidity. I think the question was came around trying to mandate that people who are on public assistance would have to use their public assistance in certain ways to pay for basic necessities and try to put constraints around that to encourage people and require people to spend you know, um, public assistance incomes on necessities rather than frivolity. And I think I remember his, his quote as an independent. He said, uh, I can't legislate against stupidity.
0: Which I get that. And you know, and being a kid that grew up on welfare, I remember those stupid times. Like I remember uh, on Cape Cod getting a credit card, my first credit card. Mm -hmm. And I went out to somewhere, I think it was Radio Shack, and bought a camcorder. It's like, what the hell did I need a camcorder for? (laughs) Well, you were an aspiring
2: film director,
0: right? (laughs) I
2: I was like, this is in my budget of my credit card, so I'm going to get ridiculous. It's really problematic. I mean, remember when we were college kids and uh, different colleges I spent time at, I remember having uh, kiosks set up in the student union areas, wherever, by the major credit card companies, all trying to get these legally empowered 18 plus year olds to sign on up for their first credit card. and i'm right. like oh you know it seems so enticing so attractive at the time but now as an older adult looking back on and say oh my god what a predatory situation to take yeah. the poor young uninformed financially inexperienced and hand them the ability to ruin their credit right off the bat
0: well business to me has always been predatory i mean when i went when i went in the marines and uh, our duffel bag, like when, when we when we're in receiving before we go to our first platoons, you know, they hand you out a new pair of boots. They hand you out yep. your skivvies. They hand you out your <laughs> your trousers and your and your covers, your hats and and a carton of Marlboro cigarettes. Oh, God. <laughs> smoke up, Johnny. Yeah, I didn't smoke. <laughs> right. At that time. At, at that time, that's exactly it. At that time, yeah. and Michael, it took me about ten years to quit. Wow! You know, but I
2: handed you the seeds of addiction right then and there out the gate.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, in my advertising life, you know, the company I worked for, we we were we did the truth campaign. We're uh, the you know, it's a company that went and dropped body bags on. The doorsteps of philip morris to fight against them and uh-huh. in all these hearings we found out these very predatory aspects and I, I you know i don't want to go into a huge long discussion about it but i, I can tell you firmly that i believe that you know oil industries doing these practices uh the vaping is oh, you know, are. no different mm-hmm I, I guess the, the universal question I'm trying to ask here is, and you as a, a man of faith hmm. and me not as a man of faith uh, um, I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say I'm not a man of faith just a different idealism a mm-hmm. do you think that the reason that these predatory practices work so well is because we don't hold an inner self truth
2: of faith? Huh. That's an interesting question. That's a really interesting question. Um I think certainly we live in a in a faith challenged world nowadays. Um I would say Again, it comes back to that whole question we were talking about earlier, about if you develop a platform, and we all have a, a platform of sorts. I guess it all depends on how large our audience is, but is our audience, you know, stadium of 10,000 screaming fans, or is our audience, you know, our community and our town, or, or maybe just our family and our inner circle around our home, but, you know, what's your message? What do you believe in? What do you want others to believe in? And, you know, bottom line is, Economic factors, you know, they're going to, they're, they're, I don't think they're competing for our souls. They're competing for our dollars. But as you brought up earlier in the social dilemma, you know, they're, they're competing for our attention in many ways they're winning and we don't even know it.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, 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 I think of myself now as an advocate to get that kind of information out because it's, I think it's so very important that the world knows this stuff. I mean, you saw it, hon.
1: Huh?
0: It was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a, uh, A ridiculous amount of uh, manipulation. And now they're saying that those algorithms are a little bit curved. So we went from them being um, just information gatherers to now being swayed in a direction to manipulate. Mm -hmm.
1: They're manipulative.
0: So it's, um, we're we're talking about the, uh, that we're finding out now that these actual algorithms are manipulative. They're finding out that they are swayed in that direction of manipulation.
2: It's amazing Um, the data they capture and, and people don't even think about it, the subtlety of it. I was watching another program that talked about this and the advertising. Have you ever noticed the two of you, Dave and Cat, mm-hmm. one of you is on your smartphone. You're looking at stuff. Maybe you see something that you might like, and you buy something, or you click on it with interest in it. If you click on it with interest in it, the same ad's going to show up on the other's phone mm-hmm. or something similar to it. You ever oh, notice that? It's all
1: linked because everything is now well, linked.
2: I'm going. I'm place. going
0: to. I'm going to interject here uh, because for the last several months. Mm I even know I'm slowly transitioning, but for the last several months, I've been using a different browser. Ah, I use a browser called, uh, brave. Okay. And it's got its own built in VPN and it doesn't track at all. I have a little bit of problems with Facebook. Sometimes it Mm -hmm. gets a little jerky, but I, I don't see any ads at all. Not only do I not see any ads, but I don't have I remember when the internet came out and you probably recognize this too. It was like and you're this is coming from a guy that does not believe in coincidences. There are no mm-hmm. such thing as coincidences. Sure. But sure. there were a lot of coincidences happening. It'd be like, oh my God, I was just thinking about that.
1: That's <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh Red, I, Nikes, what? Yes, I don't have
0: <laughs> I don't have those anymore. They're completely gone. I'm I, I'm not tracked anymore. Ah. and and it's
2: it's very freeing. Social dilemma.
0: (laughs) Yes, um, I have, and mainly because I know about marketing and I know that stuff. Being in it, but the, but I will tell you this, and Kat pointed it out yesterday. Um, She's like nobody liked your post and. There, I have to, I have to tell you, there was. And, and how did that make you feel? You know, for a brief moment, it felt I felt a loss. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I'm like, but I created this. You know, I I know that. Um, a guy I know his, his name. His name's, uh, his name's Mickey Willis. He put out a very, very, very controversial movie, um, about COVID.
2: Okay. Um, can I find it? Can we find it on online?
1: Plandemic it's called. Plandemic.
2: Yeah.
0: It's been seen over a billion times with a B. And I think they've pretty much banned it from everywhere. Uh, but you might be able to find it still. If you go to plandemic.com, his server is secure. Uh, Brian Rose is another one that has it as well. But uh, this has nothing to do with pandemic. But a few years ago, uh, Mickey caught on to this uh, because his youngest son wanted to create a Facebook account. Okay. So he brought his son on and he did it all because he's a filmmaker, you know. So he did it with his son on film and his son made his first post, you know, and the kids... I forget how he was like eight or something like that, eight or ten. Whatever the, the, the legal age that you can start a Facebook page is, you know.
1: Thirteen.
0: Is it thirteen? Okay, maybe he was thirteen. So. No, he was younger than that. He, he did it with yeah. his dad, but he, uh, he he made an ad. He made a, a post with his dad mm-hmm. and he asked his son right out. And this is like two, three years ago. He, he goes, so how did that make you feel? He goes, oh, it felt good. It felt good. He goes, did anybody like it? He goes, oh yeah, a bunch of people liked it. Mm-hmm. And his dad asked him, Mickey asked, asked his son, he goes, what if somebody didn't like it? Mm-hmm. How would that make you feel? And his son said, it would make me feel sad. Mm-hmm. You know? So not it
2: interesting? There is no dislike. And people have asked for it over the years. There'd be a dislike button on Facebook, but there isn't one.
0: There isn't. And and as you know, in, that, in the movie Social Dilemma, the guy that created the like button, Mm-hmm. Is very sorry for creating it, you know. <laughs> and w- we find all, all these intentions are not necessarily malevolent. You know, they're not. Mm-hmm. They don't go into these things saying, "I'm going to be, I'm going to rule the world with this like button." <laughs> <laughs> Finally, going to get back at that bully for punching me in the face when I was twelve. Right. right? No, they got, went into these things with pure intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, of saying. This would be a great idea. This would gather people together. This Mm. would make us all, you know, uh, make this whole experience far more beautiful,
2: you know. But it's interesting how it's actually divided us more than ever and on on steroids kind of level because of the advent of social media.
0: I make it a point, and a lot of it was because of Mickey's video three years ago to post things and let it go. Hmm. And, um, there you go. The problem with that is that people comment underneath it. Yes, yeah. And then when you run into them on the street, they go, you know, Hey man, great, great, uh, thing that you said. Uh, did you read my comment? And I'm like, I'm sorry. No, hmm. because I just put it out there. um, what I have done with people is I said, please send me an email if mm. you, or something like that, because I, ne- I for the for the most part, I don't look at my comments. But okay. because I don't look at those comments, it's created a rift with some people mm-hmm. where they feel like, oh, <laughs> not, yeah, not with her. No, um, not with no. It makes them feel like what you have something important to say. But what I say isn't it's like you've effectively disliked
2: their comment. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that curious? Like, you know, you know it's, it's, I think from a psychological level and what I'm studying with my trauma recovery coaching is that this is associated, it causes a minor, small level of trauma to not be seen, to not be validated. And that, that's, that's what so much of social media caters to is our intrinsic need as human beings, as social creatures that are built to be in community, um, we want to be seen and we want to be validated. We want to be heard. And right. so that's what the likes are all about. The likes are, you you know, I put something on out there in the universe and now I've looked at it and I've got 13 likes or I've got 37 likes or I've got 377 likes. You know, now I feel more and more validated that my opinion matters. My opinion counts. There's a consensus around me and what I've said and what I've thought and what I believe. But then you know you get the, the comments in there and you get the people arguing back and forth and they'll right. say, I completely disagree with what you had to say or I don't like what you had to say or worst. Now, because of what you've said, I don't like you. That's what it translates into. I disagree with you means I don't like you. And that's, I think that's going to be the death knell of democracy back to our early conversation there is how do we learn to respectfully disagree with one another in our democratic political stances in our communities, our conversations, and especially on social media where everything is so distant and, you know, disconnected and not face to face. You know, how can we respectfully build relationships while at the same time disagreeing with each other in principle around different topics? I don't know.
1: Mm. Mm. It kind of loops me back to, you know, we were talking about debate and, um, Mm -hmm. You know, the art of debate has changed greatly from the face to face, where you would say things mm-hmm. that you want, that you're okay with being accountable to someone's face. Whereas um, now people get behind their keyboard and they don't see your face, and it, it's even a relative. They don't, they don't think about what they're saying and how it's actually coming across and, and how it feels.
2: You are so right. You're so spot on that, yes, so much of the debate happens now and it's not face to face. There are no immediate consequences other than what others think about, it, especially in the social media stratosphere. You know, if I if you put something on out there and I disagree with it and I run you into the mud and I say all kinds of things, um, I might feel personally a little bit badly about myself about that. But if I get a whole bunch of other social followers out there who agree with me, Oh, now I feel a little less accountable. Now I feel a little bit more empowered to say what I said, and that sort of thing. It's a very weird space. I mean, to the point of debate, I think what's sad about it is that when there was a formal debate, like Dave, you were talking about you and I in college back in those days, back in the day.
3: hmm
2: you know, there were established rules to debate to debate.
1: Into and that included
2: debate. respect. No fisticuffs. <laughs> Today basic we don't respect. have rules. Yeah, basic, basic, basic respect. Yeah. It's it's not an elevated thought or theory. It should be basic.
0: We well, don't we'll, agree.
2: Yeah.
0: we'll go back to the very beginning of this conversation, mm-hmm. where you said, "I surround myself with people of diversity, yeah. different different thoughts, different beliefs, uh, different political stations." Um, I, that's very important. And Mm -hmm. so in that way, I mean, maybe they they should make a a Facebook based on the philosophy of Michael Blanton, where it's Blanton.com. Well, I'm already putting this into into perspective here, where you cannot unfriend people. Mm. Once you friend them, you cannot block people. (laughs) you have to talk your way out of the situation. Mm. It's so easy. What do they call that thing now? When they're, when they do that to people, they it's uh, where they can cancel, it's a they cancel, the canceled generation.
3: Mm.
0: We can just mm. cancel, cancel people out. Boom. I don't believe in what you're saying. Blocked. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to unfriend you. Mm-hmm.
1: So maybe there's like a, a respectfully disagree button. <laughs>
3: that's
2: good. I respectfully disagree, but button. <laughs> that's an excellent idea. Kat. I think we need to lobby for that with Facebook. Yeah.
0: Right. I, you know, with the, the They're
1: blocking s- me right now, though. <laughs> the stuff that we're we talking on. to me right now,
0: <laughs> the stuff that we were watching with uh, David Icke, um, Talks a lot about this. Yeah. Um, I think David Ike believes that this is all pre-planned. I, I personally, I, I don't go that far that that far down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Uh, but how much of this is? I, right. I, I, I'm curious about it now. Mm-hmm. How much is how much of this has been created by Silicon Valley to divide us? Mm. You know.
2: Um, and I don't know that Silicon Valley created it to divide us, you know, but I would, I I think it goes back to the you know that conversation we had about basic human nature. Mm -hmm. And I know how, you know, if we want to get spiritual or social or psychological about it, but you know, there, I think there's something to be said about basic human nature. And if we're given the tools to do whatever it is we want, what will we do with them? Um, it's slightly off topic, but Jay, my girlfriend Jamie and I were watching this uh, series. I don't know if you've seen uh, The Boys. No. It's a series one, I think, prime. And it's, it's, a re- it's, it's fun and entertaining. I would definitely recommend you watch it. Okay. Um, but it's about, it's, it's about modern day world, just like we're living in right now, with superheroes. <laughs> and what what do the superheroes do? living in this modern era, um, are they always do-gooders? Are they always going to, you know, give, given the fact that they're, they're subject to the same whims and desires uh, that we as human beings are, are prone to have and, and do, but they've thrown off the legal repercussions. They've thrown off the limitations of, you know, mortal people and now have unlimited powers in various areas and whatnot so what are they going to do and uh and it's it's got a little bit of a dark edge to it because i think you can already see where i'm leading you right with it is that they don't always do the altruistic good stuff that we would like to think that they would always that superheroes would always do that they're just as flawed and in many ways more flawed than the rest of us and what do they do with that and how do we keep them in check and i think some ways it's relevant to our you know, we're all now super empowered in terms of our communication. You know, my opinion is now mightier than it used to be before the advent of social, social media. I have a platform, I can reach far more people and whether I'm right or wrong, that's really a matter of how many likes or dislikes I get.
0: Well, also in this culture, um, it seems like whatever you say it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Yeah, it becomes a, a statement that gets stuck
2: in somebody's brain as it's subjective. Now it's rather than a, an objective truth, it's all subjective. Is it right for me? Is it right for you? Right. Hmm. Wow. Relative moralism.
0: Relative. What is it? Moralism. Relative moralism. Mm-hmm. My God! <laughs> so, I, 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 I <laughs> well, we're we're gonna button this up here shortly. We've been talking for right. over over two hours, which is great. We could go way more. Unfortunately, that, so much more to cover. <laughs> yeah, they've given me a three hour window, but I, you know, we definitely want to continue this conversation. I'd love to have you again. Well, thanks, man. Uh, um, thanks. Well, you're. You're a much more eloquent speaker than I am. So I, I, I enjoy your.
2: <laughs> you know, my grandmother had lots of great sayings. I, I pulled some pithy wisdom out of like, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Another one she also liked to say, I think has probably been, although well, write it on my, my epitaph will be. Um, and I'm sure you've heard it before. If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with. Oh, yeah. bologna. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I've, I've, i think I think you've inspired me. I have, I have, I've only swore like three times during the show.
1: <laughs> my grandma had know. a saying. It was. I don't know what your last one, you're one to
0: network. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can say whatever we want. Yeah,
1: my grandma's <laughs> saying was, of course, that old don't hit the let the don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: that
1: was her I favorite. my grandmother saying.
2: knew your grandmother. She oh, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> feisty feisty women well,
0: they, oh, yeah. think of all the um old remedies and whatnot it's it's like i think we're realizing now that they were there was some validity to most of the things that they said mm. you know there was a wisdom <laughs> there was a wisdom that mm-hmm. we don't necessarily carry now
1: we let other people tell us what's wise instead of Instead of, you know, the tried and true, handed down.
2: Well, you know, you talked about that earlier and you said, you know, who are today's leaders? You know, who should we look to for wisdom, leadership, responsibility, that sort of forward thinking? You know, immediately the names that came to my mind, they weren't any of the politicians we see on out there nowadays or any of the leaders. And I thought about immediately, you know, I thought of, you know, who are today's leaders that we should be looking to? Brene Brown. Simon Sinek, who writes so much about business empathy. Um, mm. I just saw a fantastic show, a program yesterday with uh, Oprah Winfrey, and I look at these people. I say, "Wow, you know, some of these people are people who have spent some time learning about what are the better angels of our of our psyche and of our of our personhood." And uh, you know, I would much rather follow Brene Brown and her advice about vulnerability, empathy, compassion, bravery. I'd, I'd rather follow that any day of the week as opposed to, you know, any of the the, the slew of poor political choices we have out there.
0: You know, uh, somebody that comes to mind that I just listened to recently was uh, John McKay. Okay. From uh, Whole Foods.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know just, much about him.
0: He just came out with a book um, called, uh, um, it's called Conscious... Um, oh, geez. Is it Conscious Consumerism? Hmm. Maybe that's it. Um, something along that line. Okay. Um, very interesting. But I want to check out Benet Brown for sure. Because I don't know much.
2: I don't Why know do much. Look, look, up, uh, look on YouTube for her uh, TED Talks. She's done okay. a couple of them. And uh, that'll give you a sense of what she talks about. But a lot of it is vulnerability, shame, honesty, um, and it's amazing the insight she has into those areas. And now she's actually a she's a um, private uh, speaker to uh, corporations. She talks to them about changing their their executive uh, management into uh, more compassionate, more open, honest um, leaders in their business communities. And in their own boards of directors, um, that's that's primarily what she talks about with them being open, being being open to change, being open to examining their corporate culture and their thought process. You know, that old idea of, you know, people who agree in business too much, you know, some of them are unneeded. You know, let's get some diverse opinions in here. And what is stifling people from offering diverse opinions? What's the culture? Do we, do they have a corporate business culture that encourages diversity of opinion, or more and more yes men that just fill the rooms and you know pad the egos of whoever making the decisions in place, and and how that stifles creativity and uh, and eventually stifles their um their business model. Uh, so,
0: I think of the uh, that little troll character uh who is Boromir's um member in Lord of the Rings? Gollum? No, not Gollum. He was like he was just he would whisper in the king's ear.
1: Oh oh oh, oh. Grim- Grim-
0: Grim- yes Grandma.
1: Worm tongue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, I I like knows. to plug my my girl uh Dr. Christiane Northrup. She's Huh. Medi- medical intuitive and okay. really um, just old wisdom, wisdom that's handed down wisdom on health.
0: And she plays the harp. Cool. Yeah. Can't beat that. So there's that There's that music tie in there. And, and what you said before was exactly right. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, if we could become more left brain and right, you know, add to that the left brain, right brain. I've noticed um, I've been out of the school system for so long, but my dad was an English teacher Mm -hmm. and he, by the end of his time, he was saying that they had gotten rid of sports. They had gotten rid of uh, economic, you know, home ec and stuff like that. Um, Arts. Arts, gone. Uh, We need that. We need that diversity. We need the brain working on those different Problems because what they're not going to realize down the line is that a lot of these mathematical equational problems that they're thinking are going to have to come from a creative standpoint.
2: You know, it's interesting. Back to our very beginning of the program, and back to our you know the beginning of our journey together as friends back at Cape Cod Community College way back when. I don't know if you remember Dan McCullough, who is Dan McCullough. Yes, yes. uh, Yep, he's still there. Is he really? I believe so, and he still writes a column in the Cape Cod Times. I think either weekly or monthly. Great insights, and he was a he was the professor of philosophy at Four Seas, yeah. uh-huh. and he taught uh, logic, ethics, and a few of the other philosophically uh, related courses, um, comparative religions, and things like that. And I remember being in his ethics class, and he talked about philosophy as a as a as a subject of study. And right. philosophy majors and how, you know, during the 80s and you know, very business minded uh, schools were sort of poo pooing philosophy as a as a major. Mm-hmm. But towards the late 80s, early 90s, he said, you know, there was uh, something that was happening even when we were there in the mid to late 80s, where philosophy majors were starting to be given a little bit of a of a new look uh, in the business world, and you think it might be counterintuitive to see all these, you know, um, you know, hippies and flip flops and you know, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, hanging out and, and having anything to contribute to the world of business. Said, so, you no, know, there was an editorial that said, you know, philosophy majors are the only people that, as a subject of study, are taught to think critically. Mm -hmm. And that really in business, that's what's required. And in many scopes of uh, community and society, we need more critical thinkers out there. Right off the bat, I think it's Steve Jobs. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Innovative thinking, creative thinking. Yeah. (laughs) You
0: know, um, there is a rumor. I don't know if it's true or not, but Steve Jobs would not hire anybody that did not take some kind of psychedelic, (laughs) had never experienced a psychedelic. (laughs) Hmm. You know, it, I would barely qualify. You would barely, barely qualify. Barely. <laughs> it's. Um. I'm. I'm very much on plant medicine, and okay. you know, very much so. I believe it. It. It allows us to see something that we get to experience the world as a much bigger place, regardless of what that might be. I mean, yeah. the I remember acid trips on Cape Cod, stuff like that. But that's that's a little bit different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, over at, like Darcy Kavanaugh's house on the beach, you know, it's like, right? Sorry, Darcy, She's a wonderful person. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think we need that kind of um, interjection into this reality to mm. um, to realize that we're much bigger and more than what we perceive ourselves to be. And yes, you can do that through, you know, your faith or whatnot. Sure. Um, But for me, it's more of a knowing. Mm. You know, I know now that there's more out there. You know, it's- it's However
2: we take those first steps into a bigger world as uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi would say.
0: True, true. Um, I also, I'm also a firm believer that I think every politician should have some form of psychedelic prior <laughs> prior to continuing in office. I mean, because, I mean, nothing against your faith, but, mm-hmm. I, I, and, and no,
2: and uh, you are a very faithful person. Um, that makes me just as flawed as everybody else, Dave. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but
0: how many of these politicians just hide behind that? that that mask of i'm i'm a christian
2: oh yeah sure absolutely
0: you know what i mean where if you could prove it by saying well you know i did mushrooms and i saw this right or i did ayahuasca or i did peyote Mm -hmm. like the native americans would i mean because we know that plant medicine was very big in native american cultures sure it's what it's what shamans used Mm-hmm. To, to begin their healing practices, you know.
2: Um, There's a great uh, movie about that. Um, it's actually based on South America and the uh, indigenous people down, some of the tribes down there. It came out in the 80s called um, The Emerald Forest. I don't know if you've ever seen oh, it. Yes. Oh, Did yes. You it? Yeah, and they, they very vividly show some of that visioning, you know, happening to the guy in it. Um,
0: Kat is, uh, she's been doing a lot of research lately. and and. Cool. Um, I I tend to believe uh, the direction that she she believes we're going, and um, where we're going to get back to that that time where we're actually passing into the sacred feminine. Now, you know, we're passing out of the sacred masculine, going in the sacred feminine, but where we're going to have a tribe of elders as our Focal point, not just an individual president or whatnot. Uh, again, well, a
1: matri- again, <laughs> a matri- democracy is dying before our eyes.
2: You know. We're going to look to somebody for leadership, somebody for wisdom, you know, somebody for some direction.
0: Yeah, why does it have to be one person? Sure, you know, why not a a, a tribal council?
2: You, you know, know, it's funny that our American democracy. When written on, when written up and formalized as a form of government, Thomas Jefferson, one of the architects of the democracy, uh, he and others who were working on it, they used uh, two different models. And a lot of people know that that uh, Greek democracy, the Athenian style um, democracy, was one of the um, one, one of the uh, examples that were being used to create an American democracy. They looked towards that model over in Athenian Greek. Little lesser known that one of the other primary models that he referenced was the Council of Five Nations here in America and the Tribe, the Coalition of Tribal Governments here and the democratic systems that they used.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to go back to it. So, Mike, for now, we're going to leave it at that. Cool. Because I would love to talk to you all day long. <laughs> me, me too. Um, but that only allows us to continue the conversation.
2: Always, always. As long as the conversation continues, we're all learning something along the way. And I love it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're very welcome.
0: Thank you. Uh, As uh, a last bit of information for the world, what would you like to say to people?
2: (laughs) Be kind. Be kind. Everybody's going through a tr- uh, difficulty that, you know, we don't know a lot about. And as many of us have opinions that are divergent from the others, there's so much that really, if we cut through a lot of the crap, um, there's so much more that we can agree on. And that's really worth focusing on. That's really what community and relationships are based on. And I would like to hope that now that 2020, the you know, the, the year of tornadic, Crap is nearly coming to an end. My New Year's resolution would be, and I hope other people would join me in uh, in that. That um, let's 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 try to find you know more of what brings us together and less of what divides us. And you know, if the mo- if the mantra we start with is let's just try to be kinder to one another, I think we'll move light years ahead in that direction. So that's what I'd like to leave you with.
0: Was it Blockbuster said, "Be kind, rewind." <laughs>
2: Great movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> peace, brother. Brother, sister,
1: good to see <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you. Stay
2: warm. We're almost into winter. Stay warm up there in Minnesota. Oh so far yes. so
1: good.
0: <laughs> I'll be I'll be snuggling a lot. <laughs> That's
2: not a bad thing.
0: <laughs> okay, to you and yours. Take care. All right, right, sisters. Thank peace. you. What a great show!
1: Yeah, yeah, he is. He's easy to talk to. He is very diplomatic and yet smart as hell.
0: Very smart, very smart. I, I always admired him uh, when we were on the radio years and years ago. He's always very witty. He's right there with a the punchline and also with compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a very compassionate human being. Um, great looking guy too. He was. He was definitely one for the ladies. I remember in college, it was everybody, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a great show, and uh, Kat and I want to thank you very much. Um, we've got some more shows coming up for you in the future. Um, we're going to announce those on our Facebook page. So if you head over there, you can go to facebook.com forward slash rock the talk radio. And follow us, follow us on there, follow our blog, and, and um, also we have a lot of archived um, shows that you can go and check out. You can listen to them anytime you want. You don't have to listen on Wednesday nights if you don't want to. Uh, we archive every show. This show, show will also be archived for those of you that can't make it on a Wednesday night. That's fine. I've heard I've heard that from my friends over in Europe. They're like, ah, you're playing at, you know, two in the morning now. You used to be on prime time and in London, but you know, um, unfortunately that's that's not gonna fly for the moment right now in our COVID era. But um if you hop over to my main website, it's davidreedwatson.com. dot com. That's David R E-E-D Watson dot com. And there's a scroll down win- window there under, um, I think it's under shows. shows. It's under shows. Yeah. And you can look under Rock the Talk and uh, you can find all of our shows. You can you can go ahead and listen to each one online or you can download them to your computer if you want to. If you uh, want to save it, maybe listen to Kat and I while you're doing your chores in the day.
1: <laughs> or working or whatever.
0: Or working, right? Yeah. That's I I'm I'm blessed to have the job that I have, you know, although getting up at five thirty after um, a long four day was not easy. It was really before five thirty. This was
1: a brutal Monday for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it was it was it was very brutal. As you as you can tell we, we've recorded this prior to um, prior to Wednesday night. So if you're listening to it right now, we just came off of a Thanksgiving holiday weekend, um, which was very, very weird, you know, being in the COVID era, you know.
1: I think um, everyone I talked to said it was a very weird holiday. Not not horribly unpleasant, just very weird. You know, uh, many of us, you, I know, and myself, we're used to spending this holiday, this particular holiday, with a large group of people, you yes. know, and really just, it, it doesn't involve gifts, it doesn't involve anything fancy, it's really about getting together and having a good meal and gratitude, and and that was just absent, and it was weird.
0: It was weird, you know, um, for many years I would go to my buddy Jeff's house, and his wife had also would cook for us, and... I should I should plug her creations because they're quite amazing. They, um, H- Hadasa, uh, sh- she makes the, probably the best cookies on the planet. <laughs> but yeah, I'll 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 uh, I'll let you catch up with us on Facebook, and I'll give you her information if you're in Las Vegas. And she does deliver stuff. She packages Gosh. stuff up and. And sells it online even. She'll even ship to people, which is great. And, you know, people were saying that to her for a long time. It's like, your food's so good. You should sell this. And she finally got it. She's like, okay, I'm going to sell it, which is, you know, good for her. But we, you know, you, you are a fabulous cook
1: as well. Unfortunately, the turkey you got was... How big was that thing? It was a 20-pound turkey. But I bought it, you know, anticipating that, you know, the parents were coming. But then there was yeah. an issue, and they're elderly, and they needed to stay where they were.
0: All I can say is uh, we have so much turkey that <laughs> Zeus is my best friend now. Oh, yeah. He's he's constantly by my side. He's he's like, hey, I can tell what he's doing when he's licking my finger. He's saying... um. You know, you got any more of that turkey left? Buttering you up. He is. Just like the turkey, the butterball. So anyway, I don't want to ramble on too much here. But again, we'd like to thank Michael Blanton for being on the show with us and for giving us all the insights that he has and telling us about what's going on with the native tribes um, on the East Coast and the struggles that they're having. And I know that those of you that are struggling out there, you can always reach out to us, and we'll talk to you ourselves.
1: We actually have some resources. We do. We do. We have uh, Reiki. We both are Reiki masters, Mm -hmm. and anybody that needs it, it's free. Call. Connect with me. Wow. Wow. And we have food. We have food resources, like yes. food shelf quantity type access to food. And if you're struggling that way, please reach out.
0: Yep. That's, um, of course, you have to be here in the Minnesota area, but if you're not, the Reiki we can do distance-wise. Distance. Mm-hmm. And we'll set up some free appointments for y'all, since she just put it out there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... Um, As uh, Anthony Kiedis said, give it away, give it away, give it away, y'all, right?
1: It's a tough time right now for everybody.
0: It is a tough time, and we all recognize that. We're we're not um, making light of it at all. Um, Our beliefs on COVID might not be what your beliefs are, but, you know, when it all comes down to it, we're all in this boat together, and we need to, you know, get through it together, and it's... You know, I wish right now I was a dog. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't care. They've
1: got the life, don't they? Yeah,
0: he's he's like COVID. What's that? Does that affect my dog food?
1: Nothing nope. affects his dog food. No, he gets, <laughs> he gets
0: fed in the morning and at night, and and Pippin. We've got a we've got a routine here in the house. Anyway, we'll we'll talk about that later. Um, I'm going to leave you with a tradition that I do, and it's a song that I wrote called "With the Beating of Your Heart." I did it with the Rage of Angels. And uh, you can hear Zeus squeaking in the background. Have a great evening. We will see you next week, right? See
1: ya.
3: Oh